RNMD is a show about hospital relationships from the perspective of doctors and nurses. You're very smart, and we know that you would never come to a podcast for medical advice. So obviously, call your non-podcasting doctor and nurse team if you need any medical care. Oh, and we should also mention that we don't represent any hospital at all, ever. Okay, start the thing. everybody and welcome to another episode of RNMD, a show about doctors and nurses working together in this mad world of medicine. I'm your nurse host, Abby. Y'all, I just got home from work. (laughs) I work two overnight shifts. I got to be back tonight and we had a code right at shift change. Why? Why does that always happen? Why? Oh my God. There has to be a research paper. Please send it to me. It's crazy. So I'm going back tonight. um, But first, I wanted to make sure to get this episode out to you guys because it's kind of amazing. Um, I got the opportunity to talk to the lovely Hey Siri MD. Okay, I was waiting for my phone to chime in because I recorded this once before and my phone thought I was speaking to her when I said that. Um, And I almost never, ever need my phone series help, but I always need my Siri MD's help. So, Um, okay, we talked about this really complicated topic. Um, We dove into racial inequality in emergency medicine. Um, Siri is an emergency medicine fellow in New York City, and she was also working in the emergency department during COVID um, when it hit. And we sort of bonded, her and I bonded during that time because we were sort of experiencing similar things, even though, you know, I'm a nurse, she's a doctor, I'm working in the ICU, she's working in the emergency room. Um, but we found a lot of like common ground and her Instagram is just so much fun. Um, she does a lot of, she's doing a giveaway right now. She does a lot of quizzes. Um, and she has like superhero themes and she makes them really interesting and really cool. Um, and her and I actually did a fundraiser together for a great organization, Get Us PPE. And we've raised $790 as of today. Um, and if you would like to donate, please click on my link tree. My Instagram handle is the nocturnal nurse and it's the first link in my link tree. Um, a lot of people think that the shortage on PPE is just a problem we had in the beginning, and that's not true. There's a lot of rural hospitals that do not have access or have limited access to PPE still, and these are the places that we're seeing um, COVID really heavy in these communities right now. So um, also a few weeks ago, the director of FEMA came out and said that he's worried about how much PPE we have in the United States as of right now. And if we have a bad fall with COVID, um, 
which I took to mean that it's very possible we could have a nationwide shortage again. So I think it's a really great cause if you want to donate. Um, they are a grassroots organization and they pair up providers in need with PPE. It's a great way to help out. I hope you guys like this episode and Siri and I don't mess around. We just kind of dove into some of this stuff. So um, there's there's not as much fluff in this one, which I actually really like. We talked about racial inequality in the um, emergency room. We talked about Medicare, Medicaid patients. We talked about non-English speaking patients. And it was just a really great conversation. I feel like we definitely need to do it again. It's such a broad topic. We could definitely dive in further. If you guys like this, um, please send me an email, rnmdpodcast at gmail.com, or you can DM me on Instagram. Also, please send us your topics and uh, suggestions. These these episodes are for you. So, all right, here we go. Hey, Siri MD. What motivated you to do this podcast? You just wanted to have more dialogue before between RN and MDs or what's the deal? Yeah, well, it came from Dan and I talking, actually. Like, I just started to realize that... I mean, I don't know how the culture is at your hospital. Sometimes in the ED, I feel like it's a little different. But like, I mean, actually, my hospital is good, the one I'm at now. But in the past, I've seen like a really bad division. Like, the nurses and the MDs are like fighting, like literally like yelling at each other sometimes about dumb shit like and um so I sort of was a little bit on the side of like I don't understand why the doctors do this I don't like you know why would the doctor do that and then like he would be like the today this happened with the nurse like what like why why would this happen you know whatever and we started talking about it and I started seeing like his point of view and he started seeing my point of view and it was just like first of all just like really common miscommunications and then also like I mean low key like the kind of the point of this is going to be to show that like it kind of benefits the hospital system for us to fight with each other versus for us to be one big group that's really powerful. Um, and I, I, I mean, I'm not like a conspiracy theorist, but I think some of that's planned, to be honest with you. They have meetings about this stuff. You know, there's a reason why. I work with a team of doctors that I literally don't have meetings with ever. And I don't know what they're doing and I don't know their schedule. Like, why? Why is that like that? You know, like for just a really quick example, they go to conference at noon and they're gone for like an hour and a half. We all thought they were like at lunch, just like chilling. Like, and we were all mad about it. We were like, we're having like the worst day. We can't get a hold of the doctor. And Dan's like, yeah, we're doing like presentations. Like, yeah, <laughs> like, I didn't know that. Excuse me. Like, what do you think? They're doing? <laughs> well, I mean, then he started explaining to me, he's like, I don't even get a lunch break. I don't get any time, you know? And I, I started to have like sympathy. I was like, okay, I'm sorry. Like, yeah, that sucks. <laughs> oh, like, um, that's really cool. I like, I like how you're doing this. This is kind of cool. It's open dialogue. Thank you. Also. Yeah. If my nurses had the same point of view as me, that would be kind of weird. <laughs> be like, okay. I mean, most of the time they're actually like as a resident, they, I think like they kind of keep you on it. They're like, so did you order the four of morphine that's due in an hour? <laughs> and you're like, yep, that's on my list. <laughs> or 
Yep. <laughs> That's okay. Actually, one time, uh, one of our nurses like saved someone's life and I like, I was like, that's awesome. So she like drew like troponins Aww. on like a lady who was having like some epigastric pain. Turned out, lady turned out to have a STEMI, but she came in from walk-in triage and her troponins were like way up. And we were all like, she's like, I think this patient is having a STEMI. And we're like, where's the EKG? And we look at the EKG and we're like, oh my God, call cardiology now. This patient's been waiting for two and a half hours. <laughs> oh my yeah, God. We have, we have recognition for like our nurses and stuff. You know what's interesting to me? Places, if you look at the population that visits different hospitals in New York City, it's different. So uh, when you go to like the city, for example, and there's two hospitals with their, which are within, I would say, about like maybe a half a mile radius of one another, uh, Bellevue and Tisch. And you look at the population that goes to Bellevue and you look at the population that goes to Tisch. And it is drastically different. If you walk into the emergency departments, that in itself is telling. Um, you, you wonder, like, is the care really different, you know, between these two places? Or is it just, is this just, you know, the way New York City is also very kind of gentrified, you know, uh, and segregated? Exactly. Um, so... The hospital, which I worked at, had a lot of, of an underserved community. We had a lot of we had a lot of people from different backgrounds. We had over sixty four languages spoken in our hospital on any given day, um, and there's not once, but you know, a lot of times. Like I, I almost saw like eight different languages on one shift one time. So there's a lot of diversity. Um, but what you see is that those who have less tend to be more grateful and more thankful and kind of don't question as much their own healthcare as those who come from more privilege and are um, able to afford more. I've had that same experience, actually. Um, and I feel like not necessarily always individual providers, but the system as a whole takes advantage of that because if you have a community that doesn't speak English, for example, and you're in a neighborhood that primarily doesn't speak English, but you're staffing it with all English speaking staff in a community where people are less apt to ask questions already, now they have a language barrier and a provider that doesn't understand their culture or their language. They are um, kind of easier to like shuffle around, push them in give them their follow-up appointment, push them out. They don't ask questions. They don't really make phone calls um, because of those barriers. So it's like, to me, I feel like it's so unethical because you're being paid. The system is being paid by the insurance company, but you're not really treating their, them as a person. You're not answering their questions. They're getting maybe 15 minutes with a provider. And, and many, many times they don't understand their follow-up. They, I mean, there's been multiple times where I've had a patient where they have asthma and they have an inhaler. Um, and they don't even know they have asthma. No one ever explained even how to use the inhaler. They don't even know, you know. That's so true. That's why more patients, we need to make sure we educate them. Whenever we discharged a patient from our emergency department, 
the doctor would usually be the one to discharge the patient, uh, which isn't the case with all emergency departments is what I gather. Um, and when we put in the instructions, we are able to actually change the language of our instructions um, to be like Chinese, for example, or Spanish, or um, there's a Haitian uh, French population that also visits our hospital. So we also have uh, instructions in French. So just so we're able to provide for um, their needs and see, you know, what exactly we can do to help them. And sometimes the things that they want aren't, aren't that complicated. Like, like you're like, Oh, I can, I can actually address this need. Like this is something I can do. Like I once had a, a lady who was like a, a Muslim uh, lady who only spoke um, Farsi, I think. And she had recently diagnosed ovarian cancer and she came to our hospital and I was, a, I believe I was an intern at the time. And my attending, she was like, okay, your goal today is to find this lady uh, when you discharge her, make sure she has follow-up with a doctor who can speak Farsi so they can actually see her and treat her. And it took me like almost, it took me almost like two hours. That's like literally all I was doing as an intern. Wow. And I like, I finally found it and she's, my attending was like, I'm so proud of you. And I'm like, <laughs> I didn't even do anything, but it's like, it's actually like those small things that like go pretty far. I feel definitely. Yeah. I mean, side note too, Dan speaks Farsi. So if you ever need somebody again, call us. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love it. I will have to. <laughs> um, it just struck me that it's so hard when you tell a patient, make this follow-up because our hospital made follow-ups for like our patients and kind of called them back with their appointment. But if your patient only spoke Chinese, for example, and the hospital called them back in English and told them your follow-up with the cardiologist is on Monday, uh, 2 p.m. They're not going to understand any of that. Definitely. Yeah. And a lot of these um, like Medicare, Medicaid clinics, um, a lot of these populations, it's it's students, you know, it's 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 med students and it's residents um, following up with. And so that patient might follow up with that clinic for 10, 12 years, but they see a different provider not even just year to year, they maybe even visit to visit, they see a different person. And then their their time is so short. And then they have to re-explain this, this whole information. And, you know, more than 50% of the visit is, is, sent, is spent with the physician has to precept too. So it's just so frustrating sometimes to see this when it's like, I feel like our hands are kind of tied because the system doesn't always allow you to spend as much time with um, the patient as they need. It's really, uh, I think it's, there's definitely some more emphasis put on like um, providing for more patients or billing in a certain way. However, uh, I think it's our duty as medical professionals to sort of go beyond that system and do what we can within our grasp, at least. Do you see that in the ED when you're working? Do you do you see that disparity? Can you see it easily? Uh, yes and no. So uh, 
No, in the sense, so there are some studies out there that, you know, there's these like myths or whatever that are propagated that, okay, black people don't feel as much pain or a certain ethnicity is this or a certain ethnicity is that. Um, So when I go and, you know, sometimes if there's a long wait time, I won't know like uh, the race of a patient before I order them some you know, basic pain medication. I'm just ordering it. Like the nurse will come up to me and be like, okay, fine. You know, unless it's very like obvious from their name or something like even that sometimes is false. I, I once had a, uh, a patient named, uh, I, I don't remember. It was like either Juan or Jose or something very Hispanic sounding name who spoke fluent Chinese. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> you know, even from the name, you cannot tell what race a person truly is. So, it, like, you know, you'll just put in the pain medication orders. But what I do see is that a lot of the Hispanic patients that we see and Black patients that we see um, will tell you, like, "Hey, I don't have insurance. I cannot afford this." Or a lot of um, the people who are high utilizers are um, meaning like they have multiple repeat visits to the hospital are, you know, people of color and you don't see that as much uh, among others. I once had a, this is a really sad story. Once I had like a, a black woman who was homeless, who came to our hospital for, you know, some reason like at night and she needed a place to sleep, which is fine. Uh, but she told me, oh, that uh, they sent me to some shelter, the social workers at a different hospital at sent her to some shelter. And apparently the people at the shelter were like, you're the wrong color. You need to leave. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So it was like, I was like, oh, my gosh, which shelter was this? She's like, I don't remember. But like, oh, my God, it was like I sometime like recently. I don't remember, like 2019, 2018. Like this is. Like, this is America, and racism is very prevalent. Um, So of those patients who tell you that they don't have insurance or a means to pay for it, um, they'll just be like, no, I don't don't want that test done because I can't afford it. You know, it's your responsibility to understand where the patient's coming from, but also you don't want to, you don't want to let them go home and, you know, die from whatever thing they're dying from. Um, right without the proper care and the proper treatment so in brooklyn uh itself there are free clinics so we always try to refer them to the free clinics and free resources but sometimes the care that they need is beyond that and then you're you're, at that point you're like hey you know we really need to talk the people who i feel are are most resistant to getting care and that um in reverse get the least care because they're resistant like they'll be like no I don't want these labs drawn or I don't want this done are those who are undocumented and it's it's really really sad because they're like no I, I can't be admitted to the hospital like and and it's terrifying like they're just gonna go home and die everyone you know Everyone, obviously, in medicine, we respect people's autonomy and their right to have, you know, decisions. And we as America need to do better. Absolutely. Yeah, because it's not necessarily that they're making a choice that they don't want the care. It's it's that they can't. 
they can't get the care. They can't afford the care. Um, I, I thought it was interesting what you, what you were, um, just saying about, um, the people who don't want to be admitted. Um, I, I saw something recently that was talking about New York City and ambulances in New York City and that, um, Black and Hispanic patients were overwhelmingly taken to different hospitals outside of their zip code rather than white patients. And it was with the assumption that they couldn't pay. So they were taken to hospitals where they were going to receive less care, um, because of their insurance, which is, um, illegal and, <laughs> and, um, uh, immoral and unethical. Uh, it's actually very much illegal. And, that is very fascinating to me because actually before COVID and after COVID, there's a couple of things that happened. Before COVID, if you have a particularly long transport time, uh, usually EMS, uh, all of these ambulance services have to call into the telemetry system and be like, hey, uh, I will be taking this patient to this hospital for this reason. So usually it will be like, hey, um, I have this patient with, you know, uh, such and such pain, but like I had this patient with like leg pain. I think maybe they broke something there, but it's not quite clear. However, their regular orthopedist is at, you know, uh, this hospital in the Bronx. Can we take them there? The regular hospital is 30 minutes away. The other hospital is 40 minutes away. You're like, fine, whatever. Take them to their regular hospital. So usually ambulance systems have to get um, approval for sort of long transports. During COVID, um, because of the volumes in the emergency department, some of this oversight was not there because obviously we cannot be answering calls for every, you know, RMA or every, or everything that was going on. Uh, so it's possible that this was going on, but it would have never been kind of approved during the regular times because if we knew that someone was in respiratory distress and that they needed help, then it would be, Hey, go to the nearest hospital possible, please. Like, or if mm -hmm. someone, you know, was actually truly uh, unstable, they would go to their nearest hospital. Or if it's like stroke, their nearest stroke center, you know, STEMI, nearest STEMI center, whatnot. So, right. So it's unfortunate. I, I did not hear about that, but thank you for making me aware. That's, that's something that I completely believe happened. Definitely. I mean, I, I see, and again, I, it's not something that I want to imply blame on individual people, you know, that I, that I know or anything. Um, I think, I, I mean, it's called unconscious bias for a reason, right? I mean, and I think 2020 has to be the year that we sort of look inward and, and, um, do that work for ourselves. Um, but I mean, I see that on the floor. I see the racial disparity. I see, um, undertreated pain and I see, um, you know, quick discharges and, um, lack of patient education and, um, it, I mean, we have a long history of this and I, I feel like it's, it definitely starts, it starts in the emergency room, right? And, um, I, that's, I don't know how to solve the problem is, you know, I don't know where do we go from here? <laughs> that's a, that's definitely something that will come up this election. First of all, <laughs> everyone should vote. Yeah. <laughs> for this very reason, healthcare in America is, something that we need to talk about. Um, 
so some of the trends that you know need to change like you said are undertreated pain uh so actually something that i had learned after i started training was that certain populations would go to certain hospitals not only because that's where they lived around and like i said new york city is very gentrified um it's also because they believed that they could get the best pain control for their um for their disease let's talk about for example sickle cell disease which occurs far more frequently in the black population than any other population and you know, they require high doses of pain medication for this disease. So we, um, during residency, I did not live in a, or I did not work at a hospital that provided Dilaudid. So we, we didn't have Dilaudid in the ED. So we would see less sicklers. And it's not, it's not necessarily that I don't think that it's that we didn't want to treat their pain, but it's just, um, it's interesting that we didn't cater to that. Like it's, we just don't have it, <laughs> you know, even if we wanted it, I couldn't get it. It's not in the Pixis. Um, so that's, that's something that's fascinating to me too. Um, yeah, it, it sends a message to the sickle cell community that we're not here to help you. We are, um, looking after our own policy before we're looking after you. So I think it definitely, they know, and that's why we don't see that many, but at the same time, um, I think that the reason, the reasons for it specifically not being in our system are that there is a huge opioid crisis in America. And I think, you know, happily that if, there truly were to be an emergency. We can get it from like our main pharmacy and whatnot and treat the appropriate pain, but regularly like other hospitals in the region use it more than we do. Um, but still, you know, for the people who do come to our hospital, who do receive care um, at our particular hospital, um, I think we do a very good job of controlling their pain and, Overall, because a lot of the actual like um, population of the staff itself is it, there are definitely black nurses, black PCTs, like even black doctors, like we're trying to represent more of the population. And it's one of like the most diverse places that I've ever been. So, and that's not something we see everywhere. Um, certain places you go and you're like, mm. I actually posted a picture once of my residency class and there was someone from another EM program who was like, I'm so jealous you have so much diversity. So it's, um, it's definitely something that I think we try, we're trying to change as Americans. We need, um, more people who are black doctors. We need more people who are black nurses, black healthcare professionals, um, because there are studies out there that have shown that, you know, you see, you, you feel closer to the things you see and um, the people who treat you. Uh, if they're the same ethnicity, sometimes you even receive better care, which is really scary. Yeah. I mean, I saw, I, I don't know if you saw this, there was a story from a woman who um, 
said that she had had some sort of brain surgery and she woke up and the nurses had braided her hair. She was a, she was a black woman and she had like, um, braids in her hair and her scar, the way that her, they had done the incision was also between one of the braids to where she could hide it with her hair. Mm-hmm. And, and she, she said, Oh, she had told somebody, Oh, the, the nurses braided my hair. It was so nice of them. And then later she found out that she had a black surgeon. And it was a, a male surgeon and he had two little girls Aww. and he bra- he braids their hair. So he braided her hair and he put put the incision in a way that she could hide it. And and so just simple things like little things like that. I mean, that changes her whole life. I mean, you have a scar on on your face or your head. I mean, that's a big deal, especially as a woman. And, you know, he was really looking out for her in that way. And I mean, that was my favorite example of that's exactly why we need more black surgeons. I mean, because we have so many patients that could could benefit, you know. I completely agree. There's I, I love every part of that story. That's amazing. Yeah. So cute. Um, I mean, and also uh, the, the, um, the populations that we see, I mean, New York city is really unique, right? I mean, we see, like you're saying, you saw eight different languages in one shift, right? And, Growing up where I grew up, you wouldn't see that at all. I mean, everyone, not only are they the same race, they're the same religion. I mean, literally everyone is just like a prototype of the other person. <laughs> and <laughs> that's why I left immediately. No. <laughs> um, but um, I think, yeah, like you're saying, like it sounds like your hospital is doing an amazing job. And like, I mean, that's incredible to be a part of. America as a whole, sometimes because I live here, it's like I'm in a bubble a little bit. And I I start to think that like, of course, we're thinking about, you know, at my hospital, for example, we have a um, Asian services team and the team will do a consult for them and they come in and they explain everything. And, you know, they have multiple people, the Mandarin, Cantonese, everybody is there and they'll come in and, and do a really good great job with them. Um, but you know, other places don't have the resources, don't have the need and they, they do a really, you know, not, not a great job always. No, that's, that's true. I think that it's important for other doctors to also take initiative to be a part of this change and other, um, healthcare professionals overall. And uh, some of this can be as simple as providing a list of pharmacies that are still open because not everyone still has, you know, internet on their phones or whatever. Something else is we give, we give out like these cards which save people money on their prescriptions or whatnot. So that's something else that we do so we can make medications more affordable because sometimes you know, if, if a medication is like $30 and $30 is like five or six meals, then mm-hmm. what do you think someone's going to choose? Definitely. <laughs> that's my meal. That's my medication. So they're going to choose the meal. So saving people like money and being aware of kind of what their difficulties in receiving adequate health care is kind of vital. Understanding the communities too, like... Um, I mentioned earlier that we had a huge Haitian Creole community and back when there was a huge like hurricane that hit Haiti, um, a lot of the people had just kind of fled and 
come here and they're displaced from their homes. And, you know, some of the, um, some of the, some of the things that people talk about, about patients being angry or feeling like certain kind of pain, it's, it's from being displaced too, because not everyone can immediately think of a place as their home. I actually, I went to Haiti after the hurricane. Um, it was like amazing. Haitian um, people are literally like the nicest people ever and they can cook. Oh my God. They, I came back like 10 pounds heavier because like <laughs> these lovely women were like this one here, eat this one now, now this one. And I was just like, I can't, it was, it was like amazing. That's amazing. Did you work there? Or? I, I volunteered. Um, I was lucky that I worked at a place at the time that if you volunteered for a month, they would pay your flight and your room and board. So you just had to like, you know, take a month off basically, um, without pay. So I went and, um, we, I mean, we were everywhere. We were like, we were in Port-au-Prince and then we were like a little, like a little train. Like we would all get in our like Jeeps or whatever. And then like this truck with, had like a cage on the outside of it. We're in the, like the flatbed of it. And we go up the mountain and we'd hit like the stops. Like Tuesday, they knew we were going to be in this town. And then Wednesday we'd be in this town. And like, and then every, we just like keep making that little like circle. Um, so, I mean, it was great. It was also, kind of discouraging because like you're saying a lot of the patients there they're not asking for really complicated we're not doing neurosurgery right it's it's really basic care and even that sometimes was difficult to provide and it was like like an example is there was a little girl and i mean there's not paved roads right so a mountain we're talking about like it's like a loose gravel, no road. Like it was very difficult to get up and down these mountains. And, um, this little girl, she was maybe seven or eight years old and she's walking around without shoes and she stepped on a stick and it went into her foot and her foot got infected. (gasps) And yeah. And there's no doctor in her community. I mean, even close, not even close. And the doctors that I was working with, there was one volunteer, but the other two were Haitian doctors. And, um, that one Haitian doctor in particular, he traveled daily to her. It was like hours just to go change the bandage on her foot and make sure that she wasn't going to lose her foot basically. Yeah. Because she would have otherwise, but it, it, that's the kind of thing. It's like, if we're there Wednesday and you get hurt Thursday, you have to wait till Wednesday and that's it, you know? And people are taking their grandpas or their dads who had a stroke last night on a motorbike for a hundred miles just to bring them to us, you know, out of desperation. It, so it was a beautiful experience and it was also really difficult because you really couldn't do as much as you needed to. I wish they had better access to healthcare too. I think they're, we're trying to help them get that. And I think there, there's certain NGOs and whatnot who are trying to build that foundation for people in the world. Um, we're very lucky in America in that regard. Um, the emergency rooms all have this uh, code actually. So you can walk into any emergency department in America and you have to get treatment or you don't have to, but you know, if you want treatment, you can get it because of 
EMTALA. It's a law that protects all the citizens that, you know, like, hey, listen, no emergency doctor can deny you treatment um, because of this code. So in that way, it's great because literally whatever you need, there are hospitals around America. You, you can get, you know, care. So we're very fortunate in that regard. Uh, but I can only imagine what it's like to only receive care one day a week or, you know, not able to sustain those next few days without any wound care or whatever. Um, right. Crazy. We need to, we need to continue to educate the public too, so that they can mm-hmm. continue to make a difference. I feel like, yeah, people are like, yeah, racism matters. All right, cool. <laughs> and like other people are like unfollowing. You're talking about racism. Like, you know what I'm t- like, like very simple statements like black lives matter. And then people are like, I'm unfollowing that's hate speech. And I'm just like, is it though? It doesn't sound like hate speech. <laughs> and I'm like, I could care less, <laughs> whatever you want. <laughs> Yeah, I don't care. I was actually lucky with my Instagram. My Instagram was very different. Maybe because I use my Instagram, I had already sent those people packing a long time ago. Um, so there wasn't that much of that on my Instagram. But on my Facebook, the people from my hometown were really are very resistant to change. And I just had to close that chapter of my life. Oh, <laughs> you're so funny. Is your dog yeah. sleeping, by the way? How is it so well behaved? Yeah, she's sleeping. She's 12. She's so old. Oh, wow. That's like, that's seven years is one year, right? Yeah. Yeah. She's like 82. Oh my gosh. Your dog is ancient. Yeah. So I'm so mean. Like when I'm walking her, I get frustrated sometimes with her. I'm like, especially in the heat. I'm like, walk faster. I want to go home. Like it's too hot. And then she's like, it's like dragging an 80 year old lady around behind you and being like, walk faster. Like, I feel so bad sometimes. I'm like, I'm being really mean to her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's also 80 years old. Calm down. Would you tell your grandma this? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, we had an old lady one time walking in front of us, and the lady had like a cane and she was going really slow. And I just like imagined if I was like, walk faster to her. And then I like looked at my dog and I was like, I'm so sorry. I'm so mean to you. <laughs> Aww, that's yeah. so funny. Oh, wait, did anyone talk about, I, c- I could definitely talk about this if no one did about doctors not going into the room. Please, please mention it. Cause it's like a hot topic. Everyone's like very upset. Okay. <laughs> um, so in the emergency department, uh, I think we're kind of like, there's a different culture in the emergency department. We're like, Okay, yeah, sure, whatever. They have TV. This is about the 15th person we thought we thought we saw who has TV. Um, but still, I mean, you still wear the protection, but I think that there's like kind of like a lax mindset. I think during COVID, as things ramped up, we were trying to minimize the people who are being exposed. So at one point, um, I was in the kind of the fast track area on one shift, and my attending was uh, like... I guess like, you know, in the fast track area as the third year, you're kind of like doing your own thing because you know what you're, you know what you're doing generally, unless you really need help. And so basically like during when COVID started, people, we're just trying to minimize the number of people. So my nurse and I came up with a system where she would just put them in the room after their vitals were taken. And I would do just all the swabbing and all the history. And then I would come out and then dictate it to my scribe who I was so lucky to have a scribe on. Um, So essentially 
literally, I kid you not, all I did all day was change PPE, go into the room, swab them, take their history, make sure there's no like, you know, dangerous pathology, like a retropharyngeal abscess or, you know, they're not like roaring with something else and come back or Mm -hmm. they didn't have wheezing or something like that. So essentially, I think I saw like 40 patients in one day and like about like a week later, um, they were all like, you know, PUIs or, you know, COVID, COVID yeah. likely candidates. Roll out. Roll out. Yeah. Um, a week later, um, I found out, I find out that that same day or those kind of same couple of days that I was doing the fast track area, one of the attendings who had done a lot of intubations ended up in ICU. And I was like, Oh, wow. I'm glad this came out after. Oh my God. That's crazy. I mean, you were in the rooms a lot. That was one of the main feedbacks that I actually got from the nurses. It sounded like the ED docs were in the room a lot, like even more than the nurses in some situations. Yeah. My nurse, exclusively kind of just took the vitals and sometimes if their heart rate needed to be repeated or something needed to be repeated then um i went ahead and kind of uh just repeat because i can do that stuff too you know like Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. there, there it just it just helps with the flow and to get people in and out like because we unfortunately don't have the capacity to have everyone waiting around and we don't want people, they're not sick to get sick or if they are sick to get other people sick. So, right. So that's definitely, um, that's definitely what happened there. Uh, I definitely, I definitely feel like maybe the, um, the view from the hospital is and the people that people who worked upstairs was very different. Um, Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. I think, I think that they actually got sick more often than we did. Maybe in the ED, we just have a great immune system. Who knows? Uh, For the most part. Or we we were just very good about wearing our PPE. The PPE. Yeah. There was a study done at Mount Sinai that was talking about how actually healthcare workers have a lower... Um, rate of antibodies than the general public in New York City. And that was done like right after our, like the height of our pandemic. And they were attributing it to the fact that we have access to PPE. We have the N95. So I'm assuming if you're wearing your N95, I mean, it's obviously it's not a hundred percent, right? I mean, it's in the name. It's 95%, but yeah, <laughs> but I mean, it definitely helps. I, I wore it religiously. Um, and I felt like even beyond doctors, people who are visiting for whatever reason, and then they were, but they were not wearing N95s because they weren't in the rooms. I felt like they were more likely than the even the nurses who are right directly in the room. Absolutely. Uh, something that I would emphasize, I guess, to anyone who's listening from any of those pandemic states right now, it's not just about the donning, it's about the doffing. You have to take the PPE off properly. Otherwise, you are making yourself more susceptible. Um, and just watching a video, you know, as silly as it may seem, just watch the video, see how to properly doff. Because I think the fact that we, as emergency doctors, even though we went into a lot of rooms, we kind of kept most of our PPE on versus uh, maybe we're used to donning and doffing. We're used to doing a lot of procedures. Uh, the people who work upstairs maybe are not maybe not so much used to that, they were probably getting sicker from the actual taking off of the PPE, like touching the wrong parts or 
you know, somehow, because now we know that, you know, COVID is obviously airborne as well. That's, that's such a great point. Like, thank you for that. Cause, um, yeah, again, any, for anybody who's listening from those states, like we, our hearts are with you and we're sorry that you're going through this and we hope everybody's okay. Oh, and so that's a great note actually to end on. We have that thing. Yeah. Okay, guys. So like in the intro, I said, um, Siri and I are doing a fundraiser together to help New York City frontline workers raise money for Get Us PPE. Um, We've partnered to send masks to states fighting COVID. Your donation buys masks for frontline healthcare workers. $5 equals $1.95, which is not that much money. And I think everybody here can relate to how valuable an N95 is. Also, $1 equals one surgical mask. Um, You can go to gofundme.com slash help. And there's a dash between each of these words. Help NYC frontline workers raise money for get us PPE and get us PPE is one word. So it's gofundme.com slash help NYC frontline workers raise money for get us PPE, one word. All of those other words have dashes after in between them. I'm sorry, that's so confusing. You could also just go to my Instagram page, The Nocturnal Nurse, and it's the first in my link tree. It's the first link. Um, And there's also a post on it on my page if you see it. Um, Get Us PPE is an advocate and a solutions leader for ending COVID-19 PPE shortages. Get Us PPE is powered by the largest national database of PPE requests from United States healthcare workers and institutions. Um, 100% of your donation goes to healthcare workers. So it's not going to their um, office costs. It's not going to anything else other than actual tangible PPE and it's going directly to a frontline worker. Get Us PPE is a grassroots movement. It was founded by physicians and medical researchers on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic. Their team has grown to include engineers, scientists, programmers, and concerned citizens um, working around the clock. I think it's a really cool initiative that they started and they got it up and running so quickly. Um, and it was like working really well. I mean, I saw so many pictures. We had people in New York City who um, benefited from this. So I really, um, Siri and I both, we really wanted to give back because so many people were so wonderful to us when we were going through the COVID crisis in New York. And we really want to do something for the other healthcare workers in the other parts of the country because we know how it feels and it sucks. It sucks. So let's do something for them. Please donate. Even if it's $5, $10, do let's do something. Um, and hopefully, hopefully the fall won't be so bad. And, and, um, all of the money, if it doesn't go to PPE, it is, sent to organizations that are aiding people who have worked or are working with COVID-19. They don't keep any of the money. So it's an awesome charity. Please consider donating. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. We really appreciate it. Special thanks to Hey Siri MD 
please follow her on Instagram and Twitter. If you like the show, please subscribe. Please send us some reviews and some likes. We could really use the love right now. If you have any topics, send them to rnmdpodcast at gmail.com. That's going to do it for us today. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye.